0: I can do it. I don't have to prove myself to you, though. So (laughs) I don't want to get wet either. All right. Uh, Well, it is a good morning, and uh, it's a good morning to celebrate life, and life goes with the growth series that we're talking about, this idea of looking at stories, these parables from Jesus where he talks about life in him and and growing in life in him, and so we're going to keep going with that. The last two weeks, we have looked at a couple of these parables that were back-to-back in the book of Matthew, um, and one of the things that linked those two parables, as we have talked about, is that Jesus does not explain them to the crowd, right? He gives these stories, and then he just kind of moves on, and there is no explanation to them. When he gets to his disciples, or when the disciples ask a question, then he does give an explanation to them in Matthew 13, um, But uh, it's kind of as a side note, it's just to the 12. It's not to the whole group or the whole crowd that is gathered there to hear him teach. Um, In fact, in Matthew 13, verse 34, Matthew says, all these things Jesus spoke to the crowds in parables and he did not speak anything to them without a parable. Nothing without a parable, okay? He spoke everything to them in parables. um, And so they were just kind of left with these stories, There were like nice stories and you kind of feel like, there's gotta be some deeper meaning there, right? Somebody, I'm sure there was some in the crowd who were like, ah, yes, Jesus, a seed, yes, right? But they didn't really know what was going on. They didn't know what Jesus was saying. Um, And so they're kind of left to decipher those things. Well, we get to feel a little bit of that today because we're gonna go to Luke chapter 13 this morning. And in the gospel of Luke, we're gonna look at this parable that Jesus gives, but he doesn't give an explanation to anybody, right? not to the disciples, not to the crowd. Um, And so we get a little bit of what that feels like to get this parable um, that Jesus gives no explanation for. And so we'll figure out what that looks like. So Luke chapter 13, let's read the parable. uh, And it starts in verse six, and and, and it says this. And he began telling this parable. A man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard and he came looking for fruit on it and didn't find any. And he said to the vine ke- or the vineyard keeper, look, for three years I have come looking for, this fruit, for fruit on this fig tree without finding anything, cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? But he answered and said to him, sir, leave it alone for this year too until I dig around it and I put it in fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. But if it does not, cut it down. All right, we don't have any explanation for that, okay? The only thing we have is the same thing that the crowd had, which are the circumstances, the conversations, and the context that Jesus gave this parable in, okay? So um, also I would say this version says vineyard keeper. Others versions say vine keeper or uh, vine dresser or all that kind of thing, right? So um, Jesus is telling this parable about The vine dresser. All right, so let's go to chapter 13, verse one, and let's see the circumstances and the context that Jesus is telling this parable and what leads him to, to say this that he said. And he says this. Now, on that very occasion, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus responded to them. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans just because they have suffered this fate? No, I tell you that unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or do you think that those eighteen on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed uh, killed them were worse offenders than all the others, all the other people who live in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he began telling them this parable: a man had a fig tree which he planted. Right. So you can see the context of what Jesus is addressing when he goes into this parable about a fig tree that's not bearing any fruit. Um, And when you look at the context of what brings Jesus to this parable, it's actually a pretty morbid one. It's it's not a good picture, okay? Um, While he is speaking to this crowd, he's already been teaching this crowd, and while he is teaching this crowd, it says, on that very occasion, there were some present who brought him this news. And the news that they brought him They reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Now it's kind of a weird way to say this um, and you have to do a little bit of untangling. But it says the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with sacrifice. So Pilate took the blood of people and mixed it with sacrifices. Is Is that what we're talking about? What does it mean? Well, it means that there were some Galileans. There were some people in Galilee, whoever they were, they were in Jerusalem because Jerusalem is Pilate's territory. You know that when Jesus is arrested, he's taken to Pilate, not Herod. Galilee is actually Herod's territory, but these people are in Jerusalem, okay? Um, and they're taken to Pilate or Pilate is responsible in this story. But they're from Galilee and it says that Pilate mixed their blood, the blood of the Galileans with the blood of the sacrifices of the Galileans. And what does that mean? Well, that Where do you find the blood of sacrifices if you're in Jerusalem? In the temple, right? So what these people are reporting to Jesus is that while these men were sacrificing in the temple, Pilate came and had them slaughtered. That's what we're talking about. While they're in the temple, while they're worshiping, that's a pretty harsh picture, right? It's pretty pretty bad scene, I guess you would say harsh. And that's how their blood, the blood of these people mixed with the blood of the animals that they were sacrificing. Now I'm sure Pilate had some kind of a good reason, like they actually they probably were part of some kind of a rebellion against Rome or whatever and so it, I don't think Pilate's just sending people or into the temple, you know, sending soldiers into the temple to just kind of randomly murder people, but this was a punishment, but the fact that it happens in the temple seems especially harsh. And the fact, the circumstances where these people bring this news to Jesus and the nature of what happens, it kind of makes you understand that some of the people are going, they're raising some eyebrows going, well, I don't know. It was in the temple. They were worshiping God. Is this some kind of a divine judgment? Is that what's happening here, right? Um, Makes makes them kind of raise their eyebrows. Um, And Jesus His response actually kind of tells you that that's kind of the direction that people are heading with this. Because he says, Do you think these Galileans, just because of the way they died, do you think they were any worse than any of the rest of the people in Galilee? Okay? Do you think they were any worse? Or do you think that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell were any worse than the rest of the people in Jerusalem? Do you think they were any worse? No, is the answer. He says that. He says, no, because I'm telling you, twice, he says, I am telling you, you, unless you repent, will all perish in the same way. Like that's your destiny, right? Unless you repent, he says. And then he begins telling this parable. So that's the context of the parable. He says, unless you repent, you will all perish like this. All of you. And there was a man who had a vineyard, right? Or there was a man who had a fig tree that was planted in his vineyard. And for three years, this man went to see if that fig tree was producing any fruit. And it wasn't producing any fruit. There was no, three years he went after this fig tree to get fruit from it and there was no figs, nothing. And so he tells the vine dresser, the vine keeper or the vineyard keeper, and he says, listen, cut this down, it's worthless. It's not doing us any good. Cut it down, get rid of it. And the vineyard keeper, the vine dresser, says, um, "Let me take care of it. Give me one year. Let me see what can happen. If I'll, I'll dig up the roots here, right, or I'll, I'll mix up the soil around the roots, I'll fertilize it, and let's see what happens after a year. Okay, let's just see what happens. Let the the vineyard or the vine dresser says, 'I'll give it. I'll give it what it needs, and let's see what happens.' Okay." So you can start to see kind of the context that Jesus is telling this parable in. Now, again, we don't have a strict explanation of this thing. It would be in a lot easier probably if Jesus had said, like he did with the parable of the sower, he said, you know what? The, the seed that fell on the rocky soil is this, and the seed that fell on the, by the road is this, right? And the seed that fell on the good soil is the one who hears the word and, and uh, embraces the kingdom, right? So all those things, like he goes down, or the parable of the weeds. The sower was the son of man. The good seed are the sons of righteousness. The, the enemy was the, or the, was the devil. He just goes down, he listens, and he doesn't do that, does he? not with this one. So we gotta look at the context of what Jesus is talking about. So as I go through this parable and I look at the context of this news that has been brought to Jesus and how Jesus responds to this, I think as he's addressing the crowd, he says, listen, everyone is destined to be cut down. That's what he's saying to these people. Everyone is destined to be cut down. You're like a fig tree, equally. Do you think these Galileans were any worse than anybody else in Galilee? Do you think these people in Jerusalem were any worse than any of the rest of the people in Jerusalem? Right? You're all equally on the same trajectory. You're all equally headed towards the same fate and it's to be cut down, it's to be removed. You're a fig tree and you aren't doing what fig trees were meant to do. That's his point, to produce figs, okay? And the owner of the vineyard where your planet is done waiting. Now, that gets us into some territory of, okay, well, who's the characters in this story, right? Who, who are we talking about? Who's ready to cut me down or who's ready to cut people down? Um, because most of the time, when we look at a story like this or a parable like this, we see like the owner of a vineyard. And it's like, oh, that's God, right? That's God right there. So in this case, the owner of the vineyard, God, is ready to cut you down. But then keep reading it and it's like, hmm, well then who's the vine dresser? Who's the vineyard keeper? Oh, well that's Jesus. Well, isn't Jesus God? So how can God wanna cut you down and also be the one to like, no, 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 wait, let's, let's, let, me, let me intervene here and let me see what happens. See, I don't think this parable is a, character for character, God, Jesus. I think Jesus is addressing this on a cosmic level, kind of like we talked about last week. And he's like, listen, this is your fate. You're like a fig tree planted in a vineyard and you're headed for destruction because you're not who you're supposed to be. Right? That's that's just the general facts of, of what's happening here. When we look at it as God as the owner of the vineyard and Jesus is the vine dresser, all of a sudden now Jesus is defending us from God. Well, how, that doesn't work, right? That puts you in a whole place of like, um, I gotta be afraid of God, but Jesus is my best friend, but, but God, I gotta be afraid of him. That's not the way it works. The vineyard keeper, Jesus, is God. Jesus is the one who is stepping in and taking care of the tree that's not producing, right? So let's not go there. I don't think Jesus meant for this to be a literal character for character representation. I do think he's saying this is the situation, okay? This is what you're looking at. This is it. You're headed to be cut down because you are people who are headed for destruction because you're not who you're supposed to be. A fig tree is planted in a vineyard with the intention of growing figs. Now, you can also ask, well, why is a fig tree in a vineyard? A vineyard's where you grow grapes, right? You could ask that. But clearly, a vineyard is there to produce fruit, so the fig tree that would be planted in that same situation would be there to produce fruit. That's the point of being there. But this fig tree is not fulfilling the role that it was supposed to be fulfilling. There are no figs coming from this tree. And it's had three years to plant, or to produce figs, right? Three years. And Jesus is saying, you're all like the fig tree. You were designed for something. Your purpose was relationship with God and you are not fulfilling that purpose. There's no fruit for what you were supposed to be. Humanity's purpose was to be in relationship with God. And without that, there is only death. Outside of relationship with God, there is no hope. It's what you were designed for and it's what you were supposed to have Not religion, walking in relationship with God. So he's saying, you think those people are especially bad or something? You're all destined to be cut down. Kind of reminds me of Johnny Cash, right? God's going to cut you down. You ever heard that song? What a a terrible song. (laughs) But it's there, right? Here's the thing, though. In this parable, the, the, the owner is all mad because this fig tree hasn't produced any figs, right? And that seems reasonable, doesn't it? It seems reasonable. It was there for three years, for goodness sakes. Shouldn't it have produced something? Its purpose was to be planted in order to produce figs, but it's not producing. And so it's just taken up space in the ground where something else could be growing and producing. So let's just get rid of it, right? Plant something that will be productive. But what these people who are listening to this story, what these people are hear, who are actually hearing Jesus tell this story, what they know, and what you need to know, is that fig trees do not produce figs for three to five years after they're planted. That's an average. Sure, some would produce it at two, but some are eight or 10 years old before they ever produce figs, Right? Now, that might not seem like a very significant detail, but I think it's probably the most important detail in this whole thing. Jesus said that the owner of the vineyard specifically says, for three years I went and checked on this thing and it's got no fruit. For three years, okay? Those people listening to that story picked up on that detail, okay? And I bet they were kind of looking at each other going, what's the guy so mad about? Everybody knows fig trees take a while, right? Right? Everybody knows that fig trees don't produce fruit for three years, and it's been three years. Why is the guy so mad? What's he so upset about? In fact, they're probably thinking the fig tree wasn't even capable of producing figs. That's where I say exactly. The fig tree was not capable of producing fruit. Everyone is destined to be cut down, and there's nothing you can do about it. That's Jesus's point. That's what he's saying. See, I think, again, this parable is on the cosmic scale. Like we talked about last week, Jesus is talking about the human condition. You people are like a fig tree that was specifically planted and created to produce figs, but you can't do it. You can't do it. You can't be who you were supposed to be. A tree that can't produce what it's supposed to produce is just gonna get cut down because it's just taken up soil. Humanity, you inherited a dead spirit from Adam and Eve. You were created for a relationship with God, but you can't have relationship with God. You can't do it. You're incapable of having the relationship with God that you were designed for because you inherited a dead spirit from Adam and Eve. Dead can't fix dead. Can't, nothing they can do about it. Dead can't fix dead. But luckily, there's a vine dresser. Luckily, there's a vineyard keeper, a caretaker. And the caretaker knows that fig tree. In fact, the caretaker is probably the one that planted that fig tree because it's his job to take care of the vineyard, right? So he's probably the one that planted it in the first place. He knows that fig trees don't produce figs for three to five years. He knows that cutting down that tree now would be a hasty decision, Because figs are probably just right around the corner, right? He knows that up until now, that tree was not capable of producing figs. So what does he do? He steps in and he takes responsibility. He says, let me care for the tree. Let me loosen up the dirt and the soil. Let me take responsibility. Let me nourish it. Let me fertilize it. Let me care for it. And let's see what happens. Let's see what happens. Because it wasn't just time that the fig tree needed. It needed care. It needed help. It needed nourishment. It needed the vine dresser. It's what it needed. Now we can see where Jesus has taken this parable, right? We can see where Jesus has taken this because we live on this side of the cross, and the resurrection. So we can look at this story and we can say, ah, Jesus, he's the vine dresser. He's the one that needed to step in and to take care of us and to help us out and to fertilize the roots and and, and all of that, right? We know that. We have Jesus on the cross and we have Jesus raised from the dead. We know where he's taking this parable, but the people listening to this story do not have that, okay? They don't have any of that knowledge, that information. It hasn't happened yet when they're hearing the story, when Jesus is speaking to them. Jesus offering himself up for our salvation is not something that the people who are listening to this parable understand. They didn't have it. So what did they have? Well, what does Jesus say to them? He says, repent, unless you repent. They had repentance. That was all they had, right? All they had was repentance. And so that's exactly what Jesus says to him. He says, you are destined to be cut down unless you repent. Unless you repent. So he's saying everybody stands on equal footing before God. Unless you repent, you will face the same fate as everybody else that's headed that direction. Now, what does repent mean? Okay. Repent, you've probably heard the definition. Uh, it means to turn, right? To turn around 180 degrees. You're going this way. You're going to repent. You're going to turn that way. That's what what we understand repent to mean. Um, Well, I looked it up because I know what repentance means in a new covenant perspective, Jesus, cross, resurrection. I I have that understanding. You all have that understanding. They did not have that understanding. So what did repentance mean under the Mosaic covenant? What did repentance mean for the people who lived before Jesus? So I did a little digging Um, and it's very interesting And I would love to spend a ton of time talking about it, uh, but I'm not gonna get too deep into it this morning. But what these people had for an understanding of repentance was the rabbinical teaching, the teachings of the rabbis of that time, right? And the rabbis for the common people were the Pharisees. So they had an understanding of repentance according to what the normal Pharisee, Pharisee, uh, how you say it, teaching of the Pharisees, there we go. Right? So they had that, that understanding. And the Pharisees' understanding of repentance and the teachings and the writings was pretty much stop. Okay? That was their understanding of repentance. Stop. Stop doing the thing. Stop it. Okay? That was the Pharisees' understanding. Um, and the Pharisees' understanding of the role of that in eternal salvation was exactly what it sounds like. Stop doing what you're doing or else, okay? We have a phrase that is common among our day. You might've heard before, turn or burn, right? Now, Now you're preaching. Okay, that's a common phrase, right? Turn or burn. You know what I mean when I say that. That was what the Pharisees understood. Turn or burn. Stop doing what you're doing or you're gonna get cut down, okay? Repent. That's what these people understood. Um, One scholar that I was reading who knows a lot more about or knew a lot more about this than I did on this subject, he wrote this about the Pharisees' understanding. For sin, put it up there, for sin there was but one remedy, the forgiving grace of God. Beautiful, right? And the condition for forgiveness was repentance. That is, contrition, confession, reparation of injuries to others, and a a reformation of conduct undertaken and persisted in with sincere purpose and out of religious motives. What does that all mean? Well, they start off the forgiving grace of God, and the rest can be summed up with not grace, okay? So let's, let's summarize, let me interpret what, they, what this, this man's understanding of what the Pharisees' uh, uh, understanding of repentance was. For sin, there was but one remedy, the forgiving grace of God, and the condition of getting that grace from God was making sure you felt bad, contrition, confession, saying it out loud, paying back the people you hurt, changing your ways, and keeping them changed out of religious motives. That was their understanding of repentance. Okay, so stop doing what you're doing. Make sure you feel bad about it. Make it up to the people who you hurt and don't ever go back to it and then God can forgive you, okay? That was their understanding, the Pharisees' understanding of repentance. That was what the people who are listening to Jesus say, unless you repent, That's, this is what they're hearing, okay? Stop what you're doing, don't ever go back to it and God can forgive you. Otherwise, you're gonna get cut down, okay? Now, as I was processing my understanding of repentance with the Pharisees' understanding of repentance. There's a lot of overlap, right? There's a lot of overlap. Repent, turn from your sin. You can get right with God if you turn from your sins. If you stop doing them, you can get forgiveness. Confess your sins, turn from them, and God will forgive you. Sounds familiar, right? What's it missing? Jesus. Never once mentioned Jesus in that. It's missing Jesus. When the crowd hears this, that your fate, this is your fate unless you repent, Jesus is telling that because that's all they had. Turn or burn. That's all you got, turn or bent. Repent from your sins, stop doing the sinful stuff and God will forgive you until you do another thing and then you gotta repent again, turn again and hopefully he'll forgive you and hopefully you get to repent before you die and you're not caught in sin and all of that, right? That's all they had. But are you listening to me? We are given more, we're given more than turn or burn. Even though most of us still process things in that frame of mind, we're given more. You can repent without Jesus. They did it for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. You can repent without Jesus. Jesus came for more than repentance. John the Baptist was out in the wilderness preaching. And what did John the Baptist preach? John the Baptist pe- preached, repent for the kingdom of God is near. That means the kingdom of God was something more than repent. Okay? Okay. Repentance was preparation for the kingdom of God coming. But it was more. It was more than repentance. We have more than repentance. Look at Acts chapter 19. This is about Paul when he's traveling around. It says this. Now it happened that while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and he came to Ephesus and he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you were believed? And they said to him, On the contrary, we have not even heard of this Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him. That's Jesus. In Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. If repentance was all there was, why did Jesus need to come? Jesus came for more. Jesus came for more. Did we baptize Eli this morning in the name of repentance because you said he was sorry for sinning? No, we baptized Eli this morning because he gave his life to Jesus and said, I wanna be made new. We baptized Eli in a baptism of new life. That's what we've been given, not just repentance. Jesus offers us more than turn or burn. Listen to me, repentance is just running from your sins or turning from your sins. That's 100% on you, you can do it. Try to do it, you can try to do it, right? That's 100% you and your own strength. That's what these people are understanding Jesus to say to them. But we know that Jesus came to accomplish more than that because if repentance was sufficient, then why not just send John the Baptist because he seemed to have a pretty good following and people repented and were baptized. Why did Jesus come then? Jesus came because we needed the vine dresser. We needed the caretaker. We needed someone to step in and take our respons- or take responsibility for us to care for us, to give us what we needed in order that we could become who we were supposed to be. In this story of the fig tree, the tree didn't overhear the owner complaining to the vine dresser about the the tree not producing fruit. And so the tree said, you know what? You're right, I gotta stop being stubborn. I gotta grunt real hard, make some figs happen. No, doesn't work that way. The fig tree was incapable of producing fruit, incapable of producing figs. It would not happen that way. The problem was that the fig tree was incapable of producing figs on its own. didn't matter how hard it was gonna try. So Jesus speaking to this crowd in, in, in a way that they understand to the only means that they have of finding relationship with God, he says, repent, but then he's telling them this parable where repenting doesn't fix the problem. And and yet Jesus says, unless you repent. So what do we do with that? Well, we have to understand repentance on this side of the cross and the resurrection, right? New covenant understanding of repentance. I'm still for repentance. Jesus said, turn from your sin. I'm absolutely about turning away from your sin. Jesus didn't give us a license for debauchery, but repentance without Jesus, which is what many of us attempt, is pointless. It's pointless. That's all my strength and that's all my ability. My understanding of repentance is not just turning from sin, but is turning from my ability to fix anything at all. I'm repenting from my ability to stop sinning. And I'm saying, Jesus, this is you. It's gotta be you. And it's gotta be all you. I'm repenting. I am turning from being in charge of my eternity. And I'm letting him be in charge of it. Because that's why he came. I'm turning from an understanding that because that the, the, I'm a dirty old rotten scoundrel sinner, And I'm turning towards, so turning from that understanding, turning towards an understanding that because of Jesus, I'm a son and I'm a saint because he made me that way. Is there still sin that creeps into my life? Every day. Is that a shock to you? I hope not. Every day. But I now have the freedom to turn from that because it's not who I am now. I'm new. I believe Jesus actually came to accomplish something in me. And it wasn't just to look the other way while I tried to stop sinning. What do I need Jesus for if that's all I got? That makes Jesus a security net in case I don't accomplish what I'm trying to accomplish and that is to stop sinning. Jesus has done more. He's the vine dresser. Let the vine dresser do the work. Let him care for you. Let him minister to you. You might feel like you're a twig that's been sticking out of the ground for years and years and years, and as hard as you try, there isn't any growth. There isn't any fruit. You feel like God's ready to get rid of you. You see that owner as God and you're ready to get, you're, all right, I'm preparing for it because here it comes. It's gonna, he's, he's fed up, he's done, I'm ready to get cut down. But God's not the one calling for you to get cut. God's the one stepping in and saying, let me help, let me nourish. Let me loosen up the soil so the roots can grow. Let me help and let's see what happens. Let me dig around in the ground a little bit and see what happens. And if it doesn't become what it's supposed to be after I've tried, I gave it the opportunity. If you don't let Jesus step in and take responsibility, there is no hope. That's the truth. If you're still in control, it's the truth. That's why Paul says, if you wanna depend on one element of the law, buddy, you gotta take the whole thing. Try it. Because when you break one law, you've broken it all. This is why Jesus came. This is why the Holy Spirit comes to live in you when you give Jesus control. Philippians 1.6, we talked about it last week. For I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work among you will carry it, will complete it by the day of Christ Jesus. I am confident that he is capable of bearing fruit in your life. I'm confident of that, every single one of you. Let him do it, not by your own strength, not by your own determination, but by his power, supernatural power. What are we talking about if we're not talking about supernatural stuff? You might as well just walk out the door and try every morning. Get up, try real hard. If this is not supernatural, if it's all on you, good luck. I'm confident that he is capable to bear fruit in your life. We often wonder why we don't see victory in our lives in certain areas. I think for a lot of us, maybe not all of us, but I think for a lot of us, because we're committed to, without knowing it, an old covenant understanding of repentance where it's up to you to turn or burn and Jesus came because when it's up to you you will always burn when it's up to you every time if we really believe Jesus accomplished something in his death and his resurrection we're going to have to trust him to take care of us we're going to have to allow him to care for us you're not strong enough. In 2 Corinthians, Paul is explaining that he's got something that he's struggling with, all right? Paul's struggling with a, a thing. We call it, he calls it the thorn in his flesh. You probably know the verse. Here it is 2 Corinthians 12, verse 8. Concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, my power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Listen, this is not just a nice verse to encourage you when you're feeling down. This is a fact. Christ's grace is sufficient for you in everything, and that includes your weaknesses. Christ's grace is sufficient for you. God was telling Paul, until you let go, Of the control. You will not experience my strength and my power because you're depending on your strength and your power to get through this. Okay? You're frustrated by your weakness because you're focused on the fact that it's a weakness. It's only a weakness if you're the one in charge of it. God doesn't have any weaknesses. I wondered about this verse for a long time because I'd look at it and I'd go, okay, God wants me to be weak so that he can be strong. Less of me, more of him. I get that, that kind of a concept. But then I'd also look at it and go, God, isn't that kind of selfish that you want me to be weak so that you can be strong? Like just normal conversation with God. I don't don't get it, God. What are you trying to say? And then I read this version that we just put up there on the screen. So put put that verse back up there again. Just that my grace is sufficient right there. Look at the way this version interprets it. It says, my grace is sufficient for you for power is perfected in weakness. I always read that in other versions that put another my in there. My grace is sufficient for you for my power is perfected in weakness. That's not there. The word ego, ego, that's for my grace. There is no ego power, right? It's just power power is perfected in weakness. So God doesn't have a problem with his power, okay? His power doesn't need you to be weak in order for him to be strong. He's strong regardless. His power is always perfect. But you won't experience it until you recognize you gotta let go to experience the power of God. Power is perfected, power is completed, is another way you can interpret that, in weakness. Think of power as electricity, right? You can get by with a candle for a while. You can stumble around in the dark, but when the power comes back on, you're like, oh, this is so much better, right? Think of it that way. There is an element here of trusting God and trusting his grace to be sufficient for all of your life, even when you're weak, even when you're not able to muster the strength to do the right thing or to say the right thing, even when you have a weakness that seems like it's out of your control, trusting that the vine dresser has stepped in and has taken care of you. That he'll nourish you, he'll sustain you, he will give you the strength that you need. He is able to sustain you even in your failures. He is able and he is willing to supply all of your needs according to the riches in his glory, of his glory. That's limitless. No limit. But if you were to experience that, you're gonna have to let him do it. Let him be responsible for you. He is not afraid of a three-year-old fig tree that hasn't borne any fruit yet. He's not afraid of that because he knows what's necessary for it to bear fruit and it was him. And he stepped in and he did it. Now let him do it in you, right? Let him do it in you. If y'all will step up to your feet, stand up to your feet. There's just something to this idea of experiencing God the strength of God in our weaknesses. And it's not that God needs you to be weak in order to experience his strength. It's that as long as you are strong and as long as you're capable, you you can't experience his strength because you're supplying. It's like, you're up here, you're keeping the level here and it's good and it's fine. and, and, And God wants to take you here, but you're satisfied with your strength. What if you trusted him in your weaknesses? What do you think would happen in your strengths? if you trusted him in your strengths, not just in your weaknesses, but it shows up the most in our weaknesses because we know we can't do it. So you got to trust him, got to trust his ability to sustain you, to nourish you, to feed you in order to bear fruit. Jesus told this parable, he's like, listen, unless you repent, and then he said, "Ah, but repenting is not good enough. That's why I came. That was the message. They didn't get it then because they didn't have what we have, which is the knowledge of the cross and the resurrection. But we've got it. Let's take this understanding and let's ask the Lord to work and to minister and to sustain and to nourish and to grow us as individuals and us as a family, as a church. So I would remind you, if you wanna get baptized today, there's water right here, okay? It's right there. We got clothes for you talk to Andrea back there. She'll get you set up with some clothes and we'll keep the service going as long as we can until we need to dunk you, right? If that's you. But we're just going to keep on worshiping and experiencing God's goodness to us. Just open your hearts for whatever he might have to say. I believe he's got something good for you.